You're listening to devpath.fm, the podcast about career development for software engineers. Join the conversation at www.devpath.fm or on Twitter at devpathfm. Hey everybody, welcome to DevPath. I'm with Andy Hunt and Dave Thomas today, who are uh, pretty well-known authors. They wrote a book you might have heard of before. I'll let them kind of talk about what they do now. So Andy slash Dave, how do you guys answer the question, um, what do you do? Notice the silence. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we do different things. I um, used to be uh, with Andy, part of the Pragmatic Bookshelf. Uh, we formed that back in 2002, I think. Um, but uh, recently, I've been kind of semi-retired from that. Uh, I'm still involved, but only indirectly. Um, and I'm just basically pursuing interests, which on a software side mean I'm doing a lot of work with concurrency. I'm putting together some classes. Um, I managed to get talked into teaching two classes this year at... Um, Southern Methodist University here in Dallas. Um, So I'm going to be teaching a course on functional programming and another course on programming languages, uh, which would be fun. Um, And then on the non-computers, well, actually still on the computer side, I am struggling mightily um, trying to knit together home automation. Um, It reminds me back of the original days of computers where you basically had to wire wrap things to get everything to work. and the same kind of thing here, but I'm wire wrapping software instead. So uh, that's kind of amusing. And then on the, uh, the non-technical side, my current um, kind of like get out of the house hobby just takes me from the house to the shed uh, because I'm uh, getting into wood turning. Hmm. So what about you, Andy? How do you answer what do you do? Well, so when most people say, what do you do for a living? My stock answer is I answer emails. <laughs> because <laughs> to a first order approximation that that's kind of what it feels like um yeah so i i, I nominally run the um, pragmatic bookshelf um with all that 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 sort of entails uh, but i try to do i try to do as many other interesting things you know follow the interests and the pursuits as possible so i've written a couple of science fiction novels um i play in bands i record music i do a lot of that kind of stuff um, every Halloween, I tend to go crazy with raspberry pies and pneumatic cylinders and solenoids and, you know, distributed software uh, just to scare the local neighbor kids, which works out pretty well. Um, you know, if you're going to gonna write some fun code, there should be lasers and fog machines, um, you know, and motors. And oh, come on. If you, if you want to scare people at Halloween with raspberry pies, don't, you don't have to hold the solenoids. Just show them your code. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, just show them the installation sequence. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, uh, so that's all fun. Um, it's it's really an interesting position um, at the bookshelf. We get proposals all the time from all over the world. It's a really fascinating sort of, of like it's being it's like being at the headwaters, kind of seeing what people are passionate about, what's interesting, what's coming down the pike, you know, wh- where the focus is. Um, I mean, it's a cliche to say something about you know, feeling the pulse of, of the industry, but it's a, it's a, it's a good spot to find the pulse. You know, it might not be the wrist, maybe it's only the ankle or something, but it's, you know, it's a pulse. Uh. No, it's not fair. I think, I think the bookshelf, you know, I can say this now that I'm not involved in the acquisition side. I think the bookshelf actually is doing a good job of keeping really at the leading edge of stuff. Um, and I think, I mean, the pragmatic bookshelf's always had a reputation as being kind of like the, uh, the leading indicator of what's going on. Um, so it kind of broke Ruby, it broke Rails, it broke Elixir, um, and it's continuing to break stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's what we're best at. Yeah. There we are. Yeah. Dave being you know, semi-retired, but mentoring others, and Andy being like on the edge of new things. To juxtapose that, how did each of you, you know, get, get into technology? What was your first experience writing code maybe as a hobby, but also professionally? I got to say the, the, my very first code writing was like 6502 assembler uh, on a single board computer. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of folks that are our age or around our age started at, 
a particularly low level. You know, assembly language was not uncommon. Um, you know, you maybe had to build your boards or, or assemble your computer. You know, you knew what, how transistors and gates worked. Um, you know, I think a lot of us started at, at fairly low levels. Some of us <clears throat> might even have had punch cards involved, but that's <laughs> not for me to say. Um, and I, I, it's funny because I distinctly remember um, some early operating system that I was, I was using on, on a floppy, uh, eight-inch floppy system. When you saved a file, you had to specify what sector to start at and how many blocks to use. So you would keep like an index for the floppy on a little sheet of yellow paper uh, and, you know, and keep with it of, of where you stored your files. And, you know, a little while later when um, something came along, probably uh, Radio Shack's CRS-DOS or something like that, but before MS-DOS, here was this thing that said it would pick where to put the file for you on the disk. And I was instantly suspicious. What the hell are you doing telling me where you're going to store the file? I, you know, I want that control. Um, right. So a little bit of control freak, uh, in there, but you know, time marches on. That really is pretty sad, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> My first computer was a MacBook pro. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, um, yeah, it's funny cause I was, when I was at school, at high school in England, um, I was going to go do mathematics or math or maths, like maths with the plural S, that's right. Um, and that was my track and everything else. And I, when we're at school in England, you take um, a set of exams, you take exams, uh, national exams at age 15, and then when you graduate at age 18. And uh, we had taken the 15-year-old uh, exams, but for some reason the schedule was pretty early so in my particular group, um, we finished like a month ahead of the end of the actual term. And the school had no idea what to do with this. So they sent a lot of us across the road to become like beta testers of a brand new uh, program at a local technical college, which is kind of like a bit like a community college here. And they were uh, trying the very first year of a computer science A-level which is um, the class you normally take when you're 18. And so we all wandered along there, and we're all typical bratty 15, 16-year-old kids. And uh, turn up, and I fell in love. I absolutely, the very first day, it was like, wow, this is really cool. And we were programming in BASIC. Um, and you, we programmed by punching our programs out onto paper tape on an ASR 33 teletype. And then dialing up our local, um, at the time it was our local county council, and they had an ICL 1904 mainframe and would connect to them on a 300 board modem and send our little paper tape programs up and the results would come back. And I was like one of those rats in the science experiment, which constantly pushing the button to get more food. You know, I was just like, oh, this is so cool. And so I'd be there well outside class time, just, just coding away. And from then on, I just basically changed my, changed my idea of my future, um, which I think is actually kind of interesting. Um, it's, uh, I think, anyway, I was very lucky that I found my passion early on. And I know not everybody does. In fact, probably most people don't. But I think the lesson I learned is, you know, it was actually quite a fight at the time to change what I was doing. Um, and I am so glad I did that, you know, you recognize that this is what you want to do and you go for it. So that was my first experience um, coding basic on a teletype. Can either of you recall the first time you got paid for writing software and what that was like? Oh, yeah. Yeah, clearly. Um, I was in high school uh, at the time and uh, jumped right into a set of software for a manufacturing plant that had to deal with uh, inventory and bill of materials and costing and things that I knew absolutely nothing about. You know, you know you're a high school kid, what do you know? But, uh, you know, I knew the computer um, and that was, it started off running MPM, which was the multi-user version of CPM, which you don't hear a lot about these days. And later on, it was, it was a couple of different Unix systems. But, uh, you know, starting off at a real 
a real application like that where there's real people doing things in the real world that you're trying to keep track of and trying to deal with, I think was a really great start because it was a real eye opener. Okay, well, you know, what do you need this to do? You know, what, what, are you, what are you looking for the computer to add up for you? I mean, you know, these days you could probably done most of what they needed using Excel, um, you know, but that wasn't an option then. So, you know, you, got, you had custom code and forms and, you know, this was the old days where, uh, you know, when they took orders, it was something like a 10 or 12 part carbon that you had to write really hard with a ballpoint on like a piece of marble to get through all the carbon papers. Um, and it got routed to all the different offices and, you know, that was sort of the world at that time was, you know, carbon paper copies and a lot of paper flying around. For our younger listeners, carbon paper is a layer of very thin paper with carbon on one side of it that you put between two other pieces of paper and you write on it with a pen. For our younger listeners, a pen is like a stylus in it and it draws on paper. Mm. All dinosaurs grazed out the window. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's actually really interesting. Um, so to, to date myself and maybe surprise both of you, the first programming language that I would say I wrote professionally was JavaScript. That's the first language I learned, right? So I had to start programming after JavaScript existed. That was date like a year, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I'm really familiar with this, this world of technology where people come in uh, I'm a self-taught engineer. I didn't actually go to college for software development. Um, so I'm really familiar with this, this world where people do kind of what I did and they like have these high level tools and like, ah, I can, I can figure this out and they build something and you know, it gets way out of hand. And eventually they find themselves with this title of software engineer at some company where they've convinced people they know what they're doing. So we have this, this, you could probably call it a, a, a crisis uh, that we're dealing with, this whole imposter syndrome idea that seems to infiltrate everybody in my age group that is doing software development. Um, so I want to ask from a completely different background where you talked about, you know, everyone uh, around your age has started at this low level and probably went through a more traditional educational path and learned each layer of computer science. Have you dealt with something you would describe as imposter syndrome, like a sensation that you're lying to others about what you're capable of. And if not, did you ever doubt yourself or feel like at least you were in over your head early on in your um, Do you mean like in the last seven minutes? Uh, <laughs> I yeah. mean, every, uh, okay, so we had, it was kind of interesting. I went to a, a thing called Speaker Comp, which is kind of like um, a little small get together where speakers like talk about cool stuff. And somebody asked me, whether I thought software development was harder back when I started, because I, kind of, I was kind of describing some of the old war stories. And I think the answer is no. I think that we always develop to the limit of our tools, right? So back then, I mean, it really, the limiting factor really was you know, how quickly could you punch cards or whatever it might be? And, you know, the speed of the machine, the memory available on the machine, the fact there weren't any decent communications between machines. Um, and you may do with that and you did the best you could. And I think the same is true now. I think we face way more sophisticated technology. But in reality, I think it's just as hard. I mean, God help anybody who is trying to keep up with JavaScript nowadays and the JavaScript <laughs> ecosystem. Right. It's insanely difficult. Now, the difference is that you're turning out, you know, voice-enabled AI applications that run on every mobile device on the planet, whereas I was writing something that worked on, you know, a line printer. But I think that everybody feels exactly the same way because everybody is pushing themselves to the limit. And when you do that, yeah, you're going to be actually ahead of where you feel comfortable. That's kind of like almost a definition that you're, you're pulling yourself along. And to do that, you have to create that kind of vacuum of I'm out here and I'm not 100% sure I know what's happening. I hope the rest of me catches up. Um, so I think imposter syndrome doesn't go away. It's not unique. You're not the first generation to have it. Everybody has it. The other thing I'd say is that in my uh, experience, I think that 
probably most of the good developers I've met, but okay, most of the ones that stand out, let's put it that way, did not have a formal background in software. Um, and they come from somewhere else. And they, you know, musicians, historians, um, whatever it might be. And so I don't think simply uh, you can use any kind of age basis for saying, oh yeah, you, you, know, you had that solid grounding, so therefore you can't feel imposter syndrome. Um, I think everybody feels it. And I don't think the training you had makes any difference to that. So, yeah, imposter syndrome, as Dave says, yeah, we felt that today, the last seven minutes this morning, this afternoon. It, it, it is pretty much constant, but it's, it's different. So, you know, in the old days, and this is a good question, you know, was programming easier or harder in the old days versus now? And it's really apples and oranges. It's, it's, it's harder in a different way, and it's easier in a different way. So, you know, when I started off, you could you start an application by typing vi main.c and you just started typing and you didn't have a whole lot uh, of tools at your disposal. You didn't have a whole lot of libraries. So on the one hand, you didn't have the issue of dragging in a thousand NPM modules, uh, you know, just to print hello world. But on the other hand, if you needed any of that functionality, it was on you. You had to, to make it from scratch, from whole cloth. You had to worry about memory overlays. You had to, you know, there was all these things, you know, word length. You had things that you had to really be concerned with that aren't even on the radar, um, you know, in, in modern times. So it really is kind of apples and oranges. But as Dave said, wherever, wherever it is that the technology allows and the languages and the frameworks allow, you're somewhere 10% past that because that's what needs to happen today for, you know, competitive advantage for that business, for that context. So you're always out there. Um, the big difference, I think, is that in the old days, it was much more, you could kind of get away with a sort of tunnel vision. You know, you were writing a program that ran on a computer. And, you know, maybe it reached out over a couple slow communication lines over, you know, a 9600 baud serial line and, you know, traded some, some files over UCP or something. You know, it was, if there was communications, it was, it was pretty low grade and pretty one-to-one-ish you know, it wasn't a big deal. Um, it's not like today where you put something up on the web and instantly you've got attackers from 50 countries coming in and hitting it. And you've got team members who are maybe in different countries, in different parts of the world, in different time zones. So everything that we had is now spread everywhere with everybody, with thousands of moving parts and things going along. It's hard, maybe it's harder, but it definitely has a lot more moving pieces. Um, but you know, it's kind of interesting. If you were to take somebody from say 1975 and stick him down in front of my MacBook, A, they probably wouldn't even recognize what the MacBook was. You know, it would be a typewriter. Um, but even assuming you could get them into it enough that they would be able to, you know, make things happen, they wouldn't know where to start. But at the same time, if you took someone from today back to 1975, same thing. Stick him in front of a VT100, yep. you know, nothing, nothing to do. So I, I don't think I don't think it's apples and oranges as much as it's just a uh, an evolution of of what's possible. But I think that the the underlying see the, the thing about that is the technology has changed an awful lot, but underneath it all, we're still people most of us. And the, the issues of software, by and large, are people issues, not technology issues. So in that way, it hasn't changed at all. From your perspective, you guys, not only have you witnessed this evolution take place in your career, but you actually, and I, I hesitate to use this word, but I think it's true, have become thought leaders. Uh, you put out uh, guidances on the way to do things and how to use and adopt new technologies and those kind of things. Um, how did you go from someone who was writing this one, you know, main.c file, this main, this single program in this single use case that, as you said, uh, Andy could now be replaced by Excel, from going from that to people who were setting expectations for a large number of developers in a world that was, at this point, completely different from the one you started in? We were out there and doing it. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's like anything else, you know, how do you get 
from here to there. It's, it's practice. We, we were practicing. We were out in the field. We had clients. We had to help them solve problems. We had to figure out what issues they kept running into. And I mean, we've told the story a, a, a bunch of times of how we came to write the Pragmatic Programmer book. It was originally just going to be a white paper um, for our clients because what we were seeing was that all these different organizations, different companies of different sizes, different industries, uh, different backgrounds, they were making largely the same mistakes. And they're very familiar mistakes, even in this, even today. And so it's like, okay, well, we've, we've seen this, we've, we've solved this, we know how to get around this particular problem. And that's kind of how it started. It's like, okay, you know, we, we've been there, we've done that, we can help you figure out how to get around this. And that, you know, idea of a little white paper grew into the book. And it was, you know, it turned out being sort of just what the world needed at that point in time. Because you had the, um, you know, low level technical guides, language uh, guides, that sort of stuff. Maybe you had some higher level stuff, but there, there was kind of a dearth of advice at that kind of practical level of, how do you orient yourself? How do you think about solving these problems? You know, how do you get to the next level? And that's kind of where we fit in. I think the other side of that is that, at least personally, um, I mean, Andy's 100% right that we started writing it as a kind of um, primer, primer, I guess, over here for our clients. But what I discovered when I was writing it is that having to write down stuff that you think is obvious suddenly makes it anything but obvious because every time you start writing, you say to yourself, ah, but you know, what about this? How about, you know, and so you have to get a certain clarity of thinking before you can actually write it down. And so for me, um, the, the act of writing pragmatic program, it took like two years to write pragmatic programmer pretty much full time. We stopped, we stopped billing and just basically wrote and, probably of that two years, at least 18 months was spent arguing um, about what things meant and how to express what things meant. And that process, although frustrating, was also incredibly valuable, uh, just for me personally, in that it really helped me understand a lot more the practice that I was involved in. You know, so I think, um, although I started off writing it as just like a you know, something for a client, it turned for me into a kind of journey that I would have been quite happy to finish the book and then not even publish it. Don't tell my wife. Um, just because I learned so much along the way. One thing that strikes me about, about the book um, is that it's, it's written as kind of, it's almost asynchronous mentorship, like most of those kind of uh, pieces of content where a developer like me can pick that book up and read it and, and glean knowledge that exists in your head. So I'm actually curious that before you wrote the book, were you mentoring other developers? And that's where a lot of this motivation came from, or is it these were things that you had explained to clients this many times Were those clients technical themselves? Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was mostly that we weren't formally uh, mentoring anyone particularly. This was just sort of the, you know, you're going in as a consultant and working alongside or advising a client. And these were the issues we were running into. And, and as we're sitting and talking to people, we would use these little anecdotes, little stories from our, our individual experiences. And so we kept using kind of the same stories uh, over and over again, or the same metaphors. You know, here's a way to look at this. And it, we discovered as we did that, you know, sort of what things resonated and what things didn't. And it was interesting to me that how you explain something to someone makes a big difference. So one of the points we make in the book about, uh, instead of talking about iterative and incremental development, we use the uh, very visual metaphor of tracer bullets. It's like, okay, here you've got a, a context, a situation where you're getting live feedback in real time, in a real world situation. And that's what we want to see as we develop software. You want a traceable. And okay, it's a metaphor, that, that, that's fine. But I've, I've talked to folks who are like, oh, you know, we read up and we thought we were doing iterative or incremental development and, and we, we weren't, we weren't doing, we didn't really know what those words meant. But a tracer bullet, I understand that. It's, it's going from end to end. You're seeing where it lands. We're getting, you know, we're adjusting it in real time. I get that. 
And that to me is the real important part is finding the metaphor, finding the words, finding a way so that people actually understand what it is you're talking about. Because one of the things with, uh, you know, we love making up variable names and class names and we're, we're building these worlds in the software and we build jargon constantly, right? We're always making up words. We made up words in the pragmatic programmer that people have, have been using now for 20 years. Um, so we're making up stuff all the time and it means things to us, you know, so someone can say, oh yeah, well, we'll hold a retrospective or we'll do this, we'll do that and, and use you know, whatever buzzword laden words you have for the day and everyone nods and thinks they're doing it and maybe not. You know, they're just using the words. They may not really understand what we meant, you know, you know, behind it. So finding those metaphors, finding those words, finding a way that people can really grok it, you know, really viscerally embrace it. Um, that, as, as Dave says, that was a big part of the journey because we're sitting here arguing, well, okay, well, if we say X, Y, Z, they might not take it that way. They might think this or they might think that. So that was, that was a very... You know, that was the important part of the journey was trying to crystallize our own thinking of what are we trying to say here? And what, what does this really mean? What's the essence of it? You, at a certain point in your career, you went from being, uh, you know, novices to uh, practitioners to being to a degree masters. And, and now you're talking about the moment kind of when you stop billing and you start writing full time, you're at that point, you're, you're educators. Um, what was that transition like? And when do you think there's a, a mark where you said, okay, now I'm really good at this and I can teach other people. Or was there a mark where you said, now I teach other people. I'm, I'm an educator, not a doer anymore. Did you have that? No, I think I, I have a lot of, um, I have to phrase myself carefully here because uh, I will be seeing fellow educators in not too distant future. I don't have much respect for people that teach practical subjects like programming who are not themselves programmers. Um, I think that if you were to say, I have switched from being a developer to being an educator, then what you're really doing is saying, well, as of that date, I am practicing being obsolete because that's what you are. You are fixed in whatever was current at the time you wrote your last line of code and no amount of reading you know, Stack Overflow is going to bring you up to date unless you're actually currently practicing. So when people ask me for like a bio for a conference or something, I will say Dave Thomas is a programmer and that's it. Because I think for me to do any of the other things I do, I have to feel that I have that solid foundation. And so I think I have programmed pretty much every day for the last uh, 45 years, something like that. Um, and I will continue to do so until I can no longer find the keyboard, which is any day now. Um, so I don't think there's a transition like that. I also don't think that there is, you are never an expert. Um, I think all you are is you can have expertise in something, some particular subject. So there are people who are, experts at Java or even specific parts of Java or, you know, JavaScript or whatever it might be, or they're experts on security or some particular aspect of security, but they're not experts. And I think the only way to keep yourself fresh is to ensure that you don't get into that fat, dumb and happy mode of I'm an expert. I've done it all, you know, Instead, what you have to do is you have to keep challenging yourself. And so the second you find yourself comfortable, you have to go out and find something that makes you uncomfortable, something you have to learn from scratch. So like with the wood turning, there are a number of different uh, tools that you use uh, when you're turning on a lathe. And they each have their own peculiarities and everything else. So I started off with a bowl gouge because it's the simplest. And... You know, I got to the point where I was like relatively comfortable with that. So the first thing I then did is went down to the local store and bought myself, I can't remember what it was now, it's another tool, right? And then I spent the next month totally ruining pieces of wood because I didn't know how to use it. And I think that's what you have to do throughout. Whenever you get comfortable, go find something that makes you uncomfortable. Don't throw away the other expertise, but don't sit back and rely on it, you know? So 
I know personally for me, there was never a point where I suddenly thought, hey, guess what? I'm an expert. Um, I was just constantly surprised that people would ask me to do things like speak at conferences. Just following up on that, one thing that, that, that reminds me of is you'll see people who introduce themselves as I'm a Java developer or I'm a Clojure mm-hmm. developer or, or whatever. And no, no, you're not. It goes along with the idea of, well, I'm an expert at Java or Ruby or Elixir or Clojure, whatever. No, you're a problem solver. You know, that's, that's what our passion really is. That's what our industry really is about. We're problem solvers who often use software in some form to solve the problem. Maybe we glue something together. Maybe it's just a shell script. Maybe it is Excel. Maybe we're writing an app from scratch. Whatever it might be, we're using our brains to solve problems. And that's really what it's all about. The other stuff comes and goes. Well, one of the things that makes a great developer is when someone comes to them and said, hey, I need someone to write some software to do this. And the developer thinks about it for as long as it takes and then say, Actually, I don't think you need software. I think you can do it like this. Um, and that is that underlines what Andy says, right? We're not, we're not. It's it's no more than you know a master craftsman is a screwdriver user. You know, it's it's the same concept. And and that that's you know one of these jokes that run around. It's like if if construction were like the computer in- industry, you'd see somebody getting a certification in sixteen ounce hammers you know, this kind of thing. It's like, no, that, that's, that's, that's silly. You know, we're, we're problem solvers. And that's why if you look at a lot of the, you know, good ideas and the good trends in development, they have developers working closely with the users, working closely with business to help them solve their problems. Anytime you introduce this kind of uh, artificial wall or layer where, oh, we're going to put the developers over here in a box and just slide requirements under the door and have them kick something out, it's not gonna work. It's, it's never worked. It just doesn't work that way. I'm kind of upset there because I actually have a certificate for 16 ounce hammers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, went, I went to a course for an entire day and I got this thing saying, so I'm a 16 ounce hammer master. Yeah, but that, see, that's out of date. We've all moved on to 24 ounce masonry hammers. Oh no, oh, yeah. oh, it's okay, that's okay. They're offering an upgrade this year. Oh, oh, good, good. <laughs> well, so yeah, one thing I want to pull out that you just said there, Andy, that I think is uh, really valuable and I agree with uh, in my, my short tenure as a software developer, I feel like it's a really uh, interdisciplinary field. It's something that people, people who are coming into it don't understand that. And some people who are looking in on the world, maybe they're stakeholders on different projects, don't really understand that. Um, but I work in a lot of small companies and it becomes sort of a... Uh, a result of pragmatism that I have to interface with people who are trying to use my software. Uh, I don't have that layer of maybe business analysts or whatever you want to put there that um, protect me from user feedback. But as a result, I've had to learn a lot about how to do the job the people I'm building software do. And I think that makes much better software. And I think that if I was to give advice to uh, people looking to break into software engineering, I would say like build something that, you would use because you know exactly what it needs to do and you can kind of be your own feedback there. Um, and that would get you in that mindset of, of being interdisciplinary, I think. Uh, from, from your perspective, what kind of advice would you give someone to say, this is how you become a interdisciplinary or a, a software engineer who understands requirements better? What kind of advice would you give someone who's struggling to do that? So one of the things I'd say is that um, the industry has bec- was, I mean, not anymore, probably was structured very hierarchically. So bottom of the totem pole were the coders and up at the top were like architects and enterprise, whatever's. Um, and you were talking about not having business analogs, analysts to protect you from the users. Um, and the, I know, I know you're not saying this, but the assumption behind that is actually the single biggest problem with software today. So if you want to become a developer that actually does proper development, the first thing you've got to do is find your user. Um, So your advice was to write software for something you're interested in. So that means that you are your own user. Um, And that can work. But when I've watched people do that in the past, 
I would say maybe 50% of the time they give up. However, I've also seen people do the same kind of thing, but they've done it for friends. So they'll, they'll, they'll spend some time on YouTube or whatever, and they'll get like halfway comfortable writing some web frameworky kind of language. And then some friend will say, what are you doing? And he'll say, oh, I'm writing some web software. And they'll say, hey, you know what? I collect whatever it might be, and it would be really nice if I could keep a record of that online. And the guy says, oh, okay, I could look at that. And having someone on the outside kind of like prod you every now and then uh, will keep you motivated. But also having somebody else whose ideas you have to listen to is a way more accurate reflection of what we do on a daily basis. And it's way more interesting because whenever you bring in somebody else's brain, you are having to sit there and work out what the hell they're talking about. Why are they saying that? What does that mean? And that really keeps it interesting and fresh. And to be honest, typically better than you do on your own. And I think, I mean, key to the answer to your question and what Dave was just saying is you have to have that sort of voracious curiosity. You know, you can't just let something sit there. It's like, okay, they're using some odd term that I haven't heard before, or they're using a, a normal term like account or order, and they mean something different by it than what I was expecting. Why is that, right? And you dig in, you pull that thread. You know, that's, that's really what it comes down to. The only way to get uh, any kind of uh, facility outside of our field to get cross-disciplinary is to dig into it, to, to look into it. You know, start, you know, researching it, read up on it, Google it. You know, something comes across that you're not familiar with, find out about it. You know, maybe at least read the, you know, top level Wikipedia uh, entry on it, but at least have some idea what it's talking about. And then it comes up in conversation again. It's like, oh, that was that thing, right? And you start to build your own, you know, little mental model and mental map of this domain that you're working in. And you just keep doing that. You know, you just. Well, yeah. I mean, one thing is people are. People love talking about themselves, you know, witness this particular podcast. Um, but one of the things that I don't see people doing very often, developers doing very often, is going to other people, people outside of software and saying, hey, what do you do, right? What, what are the issues? You know, what, what's the cool stuff happening in your field? Um, and that's kind of how you, you help build uh, a wide base. Um, you have to, uh, well, okay, I'll give you an example of a technique, something you can actually do, is if you are in college or if you're working in a company and they have some kind of lunchroom or cafeteria or whatever it is, make it a point to sit with someone different. Don't just have your same old clique that you always sit with, but go and sit with someone different. Introduce yourself and say, you know, I'm really interested in finding out what the hell's going on around here could you tell me, you know, what is it you do and what, what do you find interesting? What do you find frustrating? I can pretty much guarantee that if you do that, you'll come away at the end of a week with 16 ways of improving the situation for everybody because you will have more information than anybody else in that company of a set of frustrations that may well be interlocking and no one's actually noticed before. Uh, the consultants have a thing where if they are trying to understand a process, they'll do something called a work with, which means that if, um, say you're handling, I don't know, you're doing call center work, right? And you're answering the telephone. Well, they will sit there on the phone. And they may not be answering the calls, but they'll have a headset on and they'll be watching what the person does. And maybe at the end of the week, they will actually answer some calls and they will get to see for themselves where the frustration points are, what the good points and the bad points. You have to, branch out. You have to accept the fact that we are effectively a service industry and the customers are the reason that we're paid. And the more you understand what they do, uh, the more you can contribute and the more valuable you are. I found you, the, uh, the, the phrase that you used, Jacob, talking about um, business analysts protecting, you know, protecting the programmers. Um, a lot of folks think something along those lines. And Really, the way to phrase it is, you're now protecting the company from succeeding. <laughs> you know, you're protecting yourself from success. Because, uh, you know, it's funny, when the, um, when the first book on extreme programming uh, came out, when, when Kent Beck came out, which was about the same time uh, the first edition of Pragmatic Programmer came out, 
there was this, you know, uh, starting to fan this notion of working with, sitting down with the user, working with them, having the user as part of your team. And one of the, the pushbacks was, well, that's cheating. If, God, if we did that, we would have been a huge success. This would have worked, but you, you, that's cheating. You can't do that. I mean, people legit said that. And it's like, well, okay, I don't care if you think if it's cheating or not, but clearly it actually works. This is like you know, one of those secret magic ingredients um, to success. But, you know, for various you know, political and organizational reasons, you know, some folks just aren't hip to that and they continue to struggle. Because of it. it's, it's not just for your benefit either. Uh, as a developer, and that's the other, that's the rather really important part about this, that really software development is not a question of uh, writing what the user wants because the user doesn't know what they want. Uh, the user never knows what they want. They will tell you because you force them to, but they'll be making up a lot of it. So for the user, being able to sit down with a developer and talk about not the program they want written, but what their actual problems are. And then having a dialogue where both sides say, well, how about if we did this? Oh, no, that's not going to work because of that. Oh, okay, so what about, you know, and going back and forth, that kind of iteration is where the real business value comes from. And that's the kind of process that XP encourages. It's the idea of getting feedback, not by delivering software and having the person say, that's crap but instead getting feedback on a minute by minute basis and having dialogues with the customer. So in a way we can answer your original question of how does someone become broader by saying write programs, but do it properly. And that's, you know, again, one of the kind of fundamental um, misunderstandings in our industry is that, you know, software development is not a like one of those uh, uh, Play-Doh presses where you throw the raw material in and squish the button and outshoot software. It's an act of co-creation between the developers and whoever's requesting the software. Uh, you know, we have to do it together. This is why, you know, you look at um, folks like, oh, why can't we be like a startup? You know, startups work so much more efficiently than this large bloated corporation. It's like, well, of course they do. They're all, they've all got skin in the game. They're all have you know, it's small, so there's good communication, good lines of communication between the team members, good communication with the users, the users part of the team, maybe they're out there, they're in it, you know, all these good things, and yes, it works. And then you get something with 15 layers of management and, you know, three layers of business analysts protecting you from whatever, and no, of course, it falls apart. Well, yeah, you say that, but there's an interesting, an interesting side to that. Um, Kemp Beck has an interesting talk he's giving at the moment about the differences between a startup and a large company. And he's done both. He's worked in startups and he's worked for Facebook. And he says the problems in those two are very, very different. And the solutions to them are very different. And he said, if you look at the startups that fail, a whole bunch of them fail because they cannot make the transition from startup to grown-up company. Um, the successful ones are the ones that typically bring in somebody else to manage them. Because the stuff that works when you're a startup doesn't work necessarily when you're a big company. And so, I mean, again, it comes down to this idea of feedback. And you can't just say this works and, you know, expect that to be a universal rule. Well, uh, it's, like, it's like best practices, right? That, I, that phrase has always bugged the living snot out of me because it's like best for who? In what circumstances? In what context? Right? You don't ever get that rest of the story, which is vitally important. It's just, oh, this worked for me once. Everyone should do this. Well, not necessarily. Yeah, yeah well, Netflix does it. Right. Yeah. And are um, you Netflix? Do you have 100 million servers? You know, no. So why are you doing this? But anyway. Yeah, one thing I want to kind of circle this back into um, as someone who's progressing in their career and um, making this transition from, I don't know, junior or just novice technologist into more of a senior leadership role, how do you disseminate that knowledge? If you, you build it up, I mean, obviously one answer is write a book, um, but how do you do it on a, on a smaller scale? How do you do it in your day-to-day -day interactions? What's, what's your advice for that? I think you model it fundamentally. Um, 
it's uh, what do they say? Show don't tell. Yeah, that's kind of like the the um, mantra for fiction writers. You never sit there and say, you know, he was a tall man, blah blah blah. But instead, you you describe by the interactions of this person with the world what they're like and 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 you know suggested reasons. Same thing with software. If you if you want to help people. Um, you can you can tell them facts if you happen to say, oh, I wouldn't use that library, I'd use this one. But a lot of the stuff you have to model. You know, if you want people to to communicate better, then you have to model that by communicating with them. You know, if you want them to have less ego when bugs are found, then you have to turn off your ego when someone says, hey, you've got a bug in this software. Throughout the whole process, you know, basically you live that life and assume that if the way you're doing it is better, then people will naturally want to go along and do the same thing. Yeah, I, th I think that's very true. And it, it, you know, it can be a very small thing. It's like, you know, your code works most of the time. You've got fewer bugs than so. Hey, what's your secret? You know, what are you doing different? Well, I don't know. Well, sit next to me and let's, you know, work together. And, oh, oh, I don't, oh, that's, I didn't know you could do that. Oh, that's nifty. Oh, why are you doing this testing this way or whatever it is? So, you know, it can be very informal just sort of watch how I do this. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, a, a lecture or, uh, or anything like that. It's just, yeah, you're modeling it here. I'm doing it this way. See if that works for you. And that's one of the reasons that pair programming is so successful. Um, it's, it's an opportunity for both the more experienced person and the less experienced person to learn. Um, I always find that, I actually learned the most, uh, start again, some conferences have uh, little pair programming sessions where if someone wants to learn some technology, they can uh, sit down with someone who knows something about it and pair program with them. And the idea is that the, the novice gets to, to learn by you know, actually doing the work and having a pair talk to them. My experience as being quite often the person on the, the non-novice side is that I learn more than they do. Because you get to learn a lot. You get to examine a whole bunch of things that you thought, well, obviously that's how you do it. Because when a novice says, well, why? Why do you do that? What's the reason for doing that? You have to sit there and think, well, that's how I've always done it. And then you'll go, well, why have I always done it that way? And you, you know, you'll go quiet for a minute as you go through the justification for why you do it that way. Um, so I think it's not really a question of parting your knowledge there's a kind of osmotic, osmotic barrier there that goes both ways. You know, some of your, some of your expertise will leak out, but at the same time, some of their questions will actually affect your expertise. So there's a, it's a win-win. It really is. Um, but don't go out with the, the intent to, you know, save the world. Uh, just go out be enthusiastic, be open and model a thing that you want people to become. One question that I, I ask everyone that comes to my podcast and it's not uh, intended to embarrass anybody or make anybody feel weird. Um, but I ask every single person because I interview people like you guys who uh, to some people could be described as heroes. I want to humanize you. So what's something that you do poorly? It can be professionally or personally or whatever, but just, just how, long, how long you got. So I am, I am actually, okay. I quite often speak at conferences to hundreds, sometimes thousands of people. I am actually really uncomfortable in large groups of people. And um, post-conference talk, um, I know that I'm there. People are paying to see me. So I will talk to people. And I'm very happy to talk to people. But um, come like 8 or 9 o'clock when everyone's going out to the bar or something, I go back to my room and I just sit there and, you know, decompress for a, for a day. So I am really uh, not good at dealing with uh, large groups of people, particularly people I don't know. I would say I'm, I'm bad at details. I am not a detail person. And that's kind of a, a, a bit of a liability as a programmer because it's like, all right, I've got this great vision. I know how all these pieces are going to fit together. But now there's the tedium of actually wiring it all together and calling it the same thing here as there and making sure this links and yada, yada. And, you know, that, that 
level that area of programming has always been the most frustrating for me because it's like I can see it. You know, I've got the vision in my head. I know how this should be. But now there's all this typing involved, you know, and, and, and making it actually go. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's my biggest thing is is just the those those pesky little details that get in the way of this, you know, marvelous castle you've envisioned. So, so for either of you, what's the, uh, if you have one, what's the, what's the strategy for overcoming that specific struggle? I charge through it anyway, or if, if I can, I make someone else do the detail work. <laughs> I can attest to that. <laughs> I don't think I have a strategy for, for overcoming it. I have a coping mechanism, which is kind of different. Um, like I say, I, I, um, I, I, I like talking to people um, in a situation where there are roles and, you know, so someone will come and ask me a question and I'm, I will go on for hours talking to them about whatever it is they want to talk about. Um, and so my, my kind of coping mechanism is at something like a conference, I'm very happy to talk in the corridors forever uh, because it's a very kind of stylized way of talking. Uh, but when it turns into like a melee, uh, then I just basically gradually evaporate and disappear. Um, so that's, that's, you know, I have tried and I have failed. So I'm just not wired that way. So one more question I like to ask uh, pretty much everybody is, and this is, really redundant for you since together you've written a book on this exact question, but what is, what's a piece of advice you find yourself repeating a lot and specifically to uh, junior or mid-level people in the engineering industry? Never stop learning. I'm, that might be the, that might be the biggest one. It might be the number one. There was, there used to be the statistic going around. I don't know if it's still true or was ever true, but there was this notion that, most people um, in most lines of work never read a book in their field after graduating college or university. Now, I'm inclined to say that can't possibly be true in this day and age. And I don't know if that would count reading, you know, online doc or, or that sort of thing. But, you know, you really have to very deliberately invest in your career, in your career path. You've got to get out there, read long form books, read short form blog posts, Read Stack Overflow because you're going to copy and paste from it anyway, so you, you're already in there. But, um, you know, whatever that takes, you know, watch YouTube videos, you know, go take a course. But you, you really have to make a conscious effort to always be learning something, you know, and maybe it's outside of your field. Maybe, you know, you know Dave was, was just taking up, um, you know, lathe turning, um, you know, whatever it might be. Um, you know, I've, I've been reading a lot lately on modular synthesis um, and you know, playing with that you know, get into stuff and, and learn it because you find things. We talked before about cross-disciplinary um, uh, sort of things. You see lessons in other areas. It's like, oh, I see that kind of thing with this client or I see that kind of thing in software. And I wonder if that works, if that's the same dynamic. Does that work the way here? Whether it does or not, it makes you think about it. And that's the important part is to, to, you know, to keep thinking, to keep learning keep trying to draw these lessons, keep trying to apply these lessons in different areas. Um, that's really what the whole game is about, I think. Couldn't disagree with that. Um, and I think I'm probably going to say the same thing, but just differently. Um, and that is my closing comment whenever I'm talking about what we're doing here is remember to make it fun. Um, the, the idea is that what we're doing is really quite a difficult thing. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the most difficult occupation, but it's not easy. Uh, it requires a lot of concentration. It requires a lot of social skills. It requires a whole lot of everything. And it's very easy to kind of like get hunkered down in the trenches and forget that you're doing it because you like doing it. So, um, I always say to people, think about, am I having fun doing this? And if not, well, you're not doing it right. You're doing something wrong. 
either change what you're doing or reset your attitude or whatever it might be. Because fundamentally, you're in here because this is one of the coolest things that people can do. It's one of the few occupations where you start out with literally nothing and you create something that can affect the world. Uh, that is unbelievably privileged. And if you're not having fun doing that, well, you know, shame on you. Awesome. Well, before we, before we wrap up and, and say goodbye, I want to talk a little bit about the, the project you guys are working on right now. I'm kind of revamping the pragmatic programmer. So what does that look like to you? I've, I've read parts of the, the new copy, but what does it look like to you to go back and revisit that work? And uh, what parts of it have you enjoyed the most and, and hated the most? It was, it was really a, um, it was a marvelous experience, first of all. Um, in, in a lot of ways, opening up the text and going back and getting back into that mindset was kind of like opening a time capsule. Um, you know, I think we kind of forget and take for granted that even just 20 years ago, the world was a very different place. You know, um, AOL was drop shipping CDs on everyone, carpet bombing with, you know, CDs to get you online. You know, dial-up modems were still a thing. Um, the languages we use, you know, all that stuff is, is, you know, the landscape looks very, very different today. And the thought process looks very different today. Um, and sometimes in kind of subtle ways, I noticed in a lot of places, uh, more than I remembered, in a lot of places in the original book, we happened to use um, indexed for loops as part of some example. And we, we weren't necessarily talking about for loops when we were talking about uh, invariance or, or um, you know, concurrency or something else. But, you know, indexed for loops were, were a frequent mechanism to describe and show things. And you go back and realize and, and look at that. And it's like, well, okay, but you know, most people don't, you don't do that anymore, right? That's, that's not a thing. You know, we've kind of gone beyond that. So it was interesting, I think, to kind of see how our thinking has changed beyond just the, you know, the obvious technical changes. You know, we mentioned languages and, and things that no one's really heard of now, you know, they, they kind of died along the wayside, but beyond that, just how the, you know, the thinking has kind of matured and, um, you know, kind of come along, you know, we talked about a lot of things that ended up being part of the agile movement, um, that you know, we didn't use it in those terms because we hadn't had the meeting in Snowbird yet when, when the book came out. I mean, it predated the Agile movement, but you know, we, we, were, we were part of that and we kind of pushed that along. And it's interesting to see, you know, <laughs> there was one part, this was one of those embarrassing parts, right? Yeah, we, unit testing was kind of new and you know, just starting to kind of uh, take off and be accepted. And so we had advice in the original book saying, so, you know, go out and write your own unit test framework for your language because there weren't that many at that time, right? So that was reasonable advice. Now you go back and look at it. It's like, oh, dear God, no, don't, do not go write your own framework. No, 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 that, that's, that's just silly. So I found it really interesting to see, you know, what things had evolved. You know, a lot of things that we predicted ended up happening the way we predicted. Um, you know, there's some line in there about, uh, having a refactoring browser and, you know, some small talk things did this and, you know, maybe soon coming to an IDE near you. And, you know, like they all do that now, right? That, that, that's a commonplace uh, thing. So there was a, a lot of neat parts like that where it was sort of prescient. Um, there were some things that we thought were going to take off that, that didn't necessarily uh, as much. Um, and just, just, just the whole getting back into that mindset from 20 years ago was, was really interesting. And as Dave said earlier, you know, the act of trying to clarify your thinking, trying to express it, makes you really sit down and say, okay, well, what has changed fundamentally in 20 years? And what hasn't, right? All the tips and topics that we had that were more uh, dealing with uh, people problems, people issues, learning, personalities, communication, those all survived you know, unchanged. You know, maybe if we mentioned a technology or two, maybe we change that. But the rest of it was, you know, that hasn't changed. That was all the same. Um, so that was kind of fun to see, too. Yeah, I think that um, the other side of that is that in the intervening 20 years, we've had 20 years more experience. And so we can look back at some of our explanations through a kind of different lens. And because of that, 
we have the opportunity to apply new experiences to some of the things we said. We didn't necessarily think they were wrong, but we may have thought they were badly explained or they weren't, didn't go far enough or whatever it might be. Um, so I, like Andy says, I really enjoyed opening up the old book and I mean, I, it's been sitting there and every now and then I'll just open it up and like, you know, read a bit of it, but uh, going through it page by page uh, was full of memories and full of, Oh, that's very clever. I didn't realize that, you know, we wrote that. Um, and being able to look at that and then say, okay, now what am I going to do differently? What am I going to uh, improve in this was, was a really, uh, it was actually a really pleasant experience. I was dreading it. I didn't want to do it at all, but uh, we finally got around to doing it. And in the end, I'm very glad we did. I think it's been, uh, you know, it's been pleasant on the social thing. It's been pleasant on a technical side. Um, it's just all around been a, a very nice experience. I appreciate both of you guys taking the time to, to come and talk with me. I get a lot out of this experience, so really appreciate it, guys. Well, thanks so much for having us. Totally our pleasure. Thanks for listening to devpath.fm. Want to ask a question? Send an email to jacob at devpath.fm.